We have been looking at this notion that while the Bible is at least about, when we talk about generosity, by the way, people who are unfamiliar with the church, imagine that the only thing that we would talk about every week is, you know, how does the church extract money from you? And so we talk about generosity, there's this giant fear, like, oh my gosh, all they're going to do is tell me about money and how I should, I don't give enough and I should give more of it and all that kind of stuff. Let me just tell you that the Bible, when it talks about generosity, is at least about money, for sure, about how we treat the things that have been given to us. But it is so much more than that. We've been talking about this for a couple weeks. That what God's inviting us into isn't a life just simply where we give a little bit of money, but that we actually donate our entire selves to Jesus. And that's a way scarier, way more fear-inducing kind of idea. And so it's been a great series. We've talked about it for a couple of weeks, and I'm excited to talk to you today about what we got. But before we jump into today's message, would you just pause with me, and would you pray with me? Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful people. We're grateful because we get to be in here, we get to laugh a little bit, to relax, to imagine that there are people in our lives who would want to be connected to us. That even a postcard might mean so much to them. Jesus, as we gather, we also have this awareness that there have been times in our lives, and maybe that time is actually right now, where we have been the uninvited, where we have been the outsider, where we've been the forgotten, where we've been the lonely. God, for those of us for whom we experience that time right now, would you remind us that you would draw us near to you, that you come near to us, and that you, while everybody else may choose to exclude us, you look to include us by your love. Jesus, we pause, recognizing your great and powerful love for us. God, would you speak to us in the quiet as we pause before we begin today's message? And would you speak to us about that love? Jesus, we know the experience of being an outsider. We know that you, yourself, know the feeling of being an outsider. And God, today would today be the sense powerfully among this community of your inclusive and beautiful and generous love for us, Jesus. In your name, amen. Um, You have all the scripture you will need is on your outline. By the way, it will be on the screens as well. If you need a Bible, someone would love to get you one of those. Maybe you didn't see our sign on the way in in that says grab a Bible if you need one. But you can follow along on the screens on your outline. If you brought your own Bible, great, whatever. We're going to jump around a lot, so just be prepared for that. Uh, But let me ask you, while Bibles are being passed out, if you need one, just raise your hand, someone will get you one. But... Uh, Let me ask you just real quickly, in your head right now, picture in your mind the most hospitable person you know. Just who's the one who just embodies the idea of hospitality better than anybody else? Just think of a person in your head. Just who is that person? It's a grandma, it's an aunt, it's an uncle, it's one of your buddies. Whoever else it might be, just imagine in in your own head who that person is, just for a moment. Five more seconds. Got him. Okay. Now, just describe to me traits of that person. Go, just yell them out. Loving, kind, in stereo from both rooms. Good, what else? Generous, like, wow, there's a 5.1 Dolby surround there. Good, what else? What's that? Welcoming. Consistent, what's that? Humble. Genuine, what else? Heard something else. Giving, good, what else? Warm, very good. Selfless. Compassionate. Caring, fun. Good cook, Yes. It doesn't matter if you're all those other things. If you can't cook, we don't care. 
Relax. They're, not everything's a big deal. Right. You can put your, foot on their, your feet on their furniture. They don't freak out. Good. What else? Honest. Willing. Good. Now, if I was to ask you guys, if I was to ask anybody, really, if I was to say whether or not someone knew Jesus, was a follower of Jesus, you know, they belong, or not, if I said, hey, just describe some of the traits that Christians are supposed to have. In other words, people who follow Jesus should look like what? And more than likely, you get some kind of description of the words you just described. That this would be something kind of people who belong to Jesus are probably supposed to do. That one of the markers of being a Christian would be this sort of hospitality kind of thing. In fact, there's a couple lists in the Bible where hospitality is listed as part of like what it means to live out the life of someone who belongs to Jesus. Romans 12, beginning in verse 9, is a section of scripture sometimes called uh, the love and action sort of you know, section. Where it just kind of describes Paul, the Apostle Paul is describing... Here's what it looks like to follow Jesus. Here's what your life ought to look like. Here's what it looks like for people who belong to Jesus, etc. So here's what it is. Verse 9. Romans 12, verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. So far this all sounds like very Christian-y stuff. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal. But keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Patient in affliction. Faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. And lastly, practice hospitality, right? It's just one of those things, some way or another, there's this kind of welcoming, creating space for people kind of idea that Christians are supposed to embody. Now, for some of us, we're like, yes, I love this idea. This is what I'm, this is why I'm all about this. I, this is me. I am all those things people described. I wouldn't brag about it because one of them was humble. I heard someone say that, but you know, but yeah, I'm kind of that person. And others of us are like, man, I have to live with that person. I'm married to that person and I am, <laughs> Man, it's a little bit of a stretch for me. People are like, hey, people, I got 100 people coming over to the house this weekend. Oh, awesome. I mean, there's part, that, that, you might connect with that idea. To those people, which, of which I'm included, first, this is what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. <laughs> the, the literal translation is the word mumbling. In other words, yay, everyone's coming over. That's just wonderful. I just, that's great. I'm so glad they're coming over. Like, that's kind of what this is about. That there's in some way this idea of offering hospitality without grumbling, that feels very Christian-y. It doesn't, even if you've never been to church, my guess is you probably could say Christians look kind of like that. They're, at least they're supposed to. Whether or not they do, they're supposed to look like that. But let me just throw something out there. What if in everything we just said and talked about, we talked about hospitality, everything you said was true, but what if it missed gigantically the actual point of hospitality? I mean, what if we were close, we're in the ballpark for sure, all those things are true, particularly the good cook thing, that's all true. But what if there's something so incredibly critical that we've left out, that we missed about hospitality? Here's what the word is in Greek, hospitality, right here, philoxenia, put it on the screen right now. Now, but not now, but now. There, okay. That word is the Greek word for hospitality. Now, let me break it down. It's got two roots. We can leave this up there for a little bit. Uh, the first one is this, the word philo, or philios, or philos, is the, is the word meaning like brotherly affection and love. Like kind of the affection you have for family members uh, or friends, that we have this kind of philios kind of love for each other. Now, it's where we get words like philosophy, which means philos, which is love of sophos, wisdom. Uh, you get words like philanthropy. Again, phil meaning this sort of the love, anthropos meaning man or mankind or humanity, men and women. You have the notion, the, the word, for instance, uh, Philadelphia, which is a city of brotherly love. 
philios and adelphos, meaning brothers, brothers and sisters. Now, that's, that's the first part of this word of hospitality. The second part of this word is the word exenos, or xenos, which means outsider, stranger, the other person, the one who's far from you, the one who is least familiar to you. That's the stranger, the other person. Someone of a different ethnic background, someone of a different religious background, someone who has different lifestyle practices, who speaks a different language, who is so very different than you. The word hospitality literally means a genuine affection for the outsider. A genuine affection for the stranger. In other words, when we're talking about hospitality, we're talking about something so incredibly crazy. This is a bizarre, dangerous kind of thing. Because we know when we're even, when we think about this notion of affection for strangers, that just seems like something we should not be saying. That's not safe for people to say in church. In fact, if I was to go through, let me just fill in the blank with me real quickly. We tell little kids things like this. Always look people in the, hold hands when you're crossing the street. Um, don't run with, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. And never, ever, under any circumstances, should you ever talk to strangers. Stranger danger. I remember when I was in fifth grade, they told us if someone ever grabs you to make, like, the most annoying sound you can. I'm like, really? They're like, yeah, don't scream. Do like a, ha, like that. That was the sound they told us to make. <laughs> Didn't really catch on. Haven't seen any movies. No, there's no, like, Law and Order episodes where someone's just, ha, whatever. But... They tell you at a very young age, we were told, and it's a wise thing. Don't go talking to strangers. Some, you know, guy rolls up in a van full of puppies, you know, that, hey, get away. That's danger, right? Stranger, right? And I think this is a wise policy. But what happens to us as we get a little bit older is that our genuine sort of dangerous sort of encounter with strangers that we try to think about when we're little becomes something different. The word for what it is when we're older, this idea of fear of strangers, is the word xeno. Phobia. Exeno, meaning stranger, outsider, different person. Phobia, meaning fear. In some way or another, as we grow up, we begin to legitimize this distance from outsiders as safe and responsible, and as this is the way we're supposed to act. This is the way normal, responsible people act in society, is that they have a distance from the strangers, those who are different than them. Only if we're really looking at this seriously, the notion of hospitality is about welcoming the stranger. My, one of my favorite restaurants, um, there's, there's two of them that I know of. They're both in Newport Beach. And so they're, they're, they're these, it's like a fish taco place called Bear Flag. Some of you guys have been there. And there's this, and the, because the rent's so expensive in Newport Beach, you know, it's a walk-up counter. It's, like a, it's not like it's a nice restaurant. It's just really good food. But the, the rent's so expensive, they have these tiny little places. And when you go to the, to the counter and you order your burrito or your taco or whatever, and you turn around to sit down, they only have what they like to call open seating, common tables, which means you have this awkward, some of you are like, that sounds, I love this idea. Can I just, you're a crazy person. Because that means you have to take your burrito over there and you're like sitting next to someone. You're not sure whether you're supposed to like, here's someone sitting right here. You're not sure you're supposed to be like, hi, how's it going? You have your burrito and I have my, are you supposed to shield them from your disgusting eating habits or whatever it is? 
I, I, I'm a person, you know, when I go to a fast food restaurant by myself, I'm always amazed at people who will sit so they can see me eating. Like, they're by themselves, and they sit, like, even if it's two booths away, but they're looking at me. I'm like, are you crazy? Because I, like, if, if you're all at the fast food restaurant, and I walk in and have my tray of food, and I see you, I might maybe make eye contact with you, but more than likely, I'm just going to sit right here. So you're looking at the back of my head. Because there's something about this idea of the stranger that's incredibly uncomfortable. I'm a person on an airplane who I always have the, like, internal debate about who gets the armrest. You know, they're like, are we, are you, am I, because I'm, okay, it's, all, it's only four hours. I can sit like this. You know, like, I have that whole, I don't want to, I don't want to talk. There's an app someone told me about this week that you can download for your phone. It's called the Supper King. Now, I don't know if this is even true. I just, this, it seems like it's so bizarre. I can't even imagine this. But it's like if you want to show off your, cook, your cooking skills, you can invite people, strangers to your house, to enjoy your cooking. Now, you have to be a really sort of egotistical cook, I think, to have these people come over to your house. But it's like, my cooking's so good, people will just come over and stay in my house. And I'm so glad that they're here. Oh, my gosh. How is that legal? I mean, it's just crazy to me. Now, when we're talking about hospitality, it's all those things that I'm afraid of are exactly what's being talked about here. And now the notion of hosting people with hospitality and not grumbling about it seems like incredibly impossible to me. And yet, this is the definition of hospitality in the Bible, and it is incredibly fearlessly generous. When Jesus talked about it, now he's a guy who didn't have a house that he hosted people in, but he always talked about hospitality in the most scandalous, crazy ways. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 14. Look, just recognize the sort of hospitality theme throughout this here. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Now, this is kind of a big deal. I, if you grew up in the church, you have a sense about Pharisees, that they're kind of these blood-sucking vampire people who just hated everybody. You know, like just, there's this group of people walking around, you know, whatever it is that they were doing. But you have to understand what the Pharisees are about. Because it's, there's, Jesus has antagonism towards some of them, not all of them. But the Pharisees are people who believe that the intention of God would be to rescue his own people if they were more righteous. In other words, God's people had gone off the wagon. They started worshiping other gods and being disobedient. And so God has let the Romans take them over. So if we could ratchet up the righteousness, if we could start distancing ourselves from people who are different than us, well then, or, you know, who are, who are profane as it were, then in some way or another, God would probably come back in, rescue us, we'd be all celebrated and awesome. So this is the, this is the emphasis by the Pharisees. And their intention is sort of, they're super strict adherence to the law. And when people would ask in, that, in the first century, hey, who's, who's like a really righteous person? They wouldn't, say, they wouldn't say, you know, hey, the Pharisees are, but they're really mean. They would just say, oh, man, the Pharisees. Those guys, have, those guys are serious about righteousness. Now, this passage makes a point about it being on the Sabbath, meaning this is the day where no work is supposed to be done. And the Pharisees were hyper committed to, like, not doing anything on the Sabbath. Jesus actually, between verse 1 and verse 12, heals a guy who's got some swelling in his legs. But so they're, they're, they're all, all the Pharisees are watching Jesus to see if he's actually righteous. So skip down to verse 12. He's having dinner or at this Pharisee's house. Then he said, then Jesus said to his host, the person hosting everybody, Mr. Hospitable, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. Then say poor neighbors, your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, 
Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Now, as a person who spends time, like, teaching the Bible, I always wanted this passage to be, like, one of those things Jesus says that's like a gross hyperbole, some kind of giant exaggeration. You know how Jesus is always exaggerating, doing stuff like this? This doesn't appear to be one of those times, which is incredibly difficult for me. Because Jesus says to the person who's hosting this party, he's a very important person. Everybody would have known. That's a prominent Pharisee. He says, don't invite the people you invited, which presumably would have included him. Instead, invite these people on the margins, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Because part of what Pharisees would say is, those people who have these kind of afflictions are clearly not blessed. God has clearly shown them a lack of favor, which means they're already on the outside. And if they're with us, if they're among us, that means they're somehow poisoning the camp. We can't have them with us. Even more so is the question, you have to ask the question, why is Jesus listing off these people specifically? Part of it is because as the Pharisees looked at their own nation, they said, we're ratcheting up our level of righteousness. We got to make sure everybody, because as God calls us a priesthood of, of, of na a nation of a nation of priests, as He says in Exodus, then everybody should follow them the priestly laws. Priest or not, everybody's got to adhere to these laws. So they get they sort of take on the laws that were designed for a specific group of people, the priests, and they apply them to everybody. Now this is why this matters. Look what it says in Leviticus twenty-one. This is where they get this. The Lord said to Moses, "This is God speaking about how the priests should be." In verse 20, this is the holiness for priests. Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, say to Aaron, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, verse 17. Say to Aaron, for the generations to come, none of your descendants, meaning these are all the priests, who has a defect may come near to offer the food of his God. No man who has any defect may come near. No man who is blind or lame, disfigured or disformed, deformed. No man with a crippled foot. Or hand, and the list goes on of all the things of people that can't approach God, priests. Now what the Pharisees have done, have they have applied this exact same list to regular people. Saying they shouldn't be included. There's something about them that's not right. We need them at a distance from us. And very clearly, there is a creation of an outsider group, and an unwelcome group, and an insider group. People that belong to the us party. And Jesus is saying, all those people who are on the outside group, those are the people to whom you have to be sending invitations. Those are the people who ought to be a part of this party. They ought to be included here. Now we know it's easy to live in a world of insiders and outsiders. From a very young age, we get a picture about what it means to be on the inside or what it means to be on the outside. Some of us, we're the stereotypical kid who got picked last for Red Rover. And we know, even at a really young age, oh my gosh, this is painful. Those people over there, they don't want me. When we get a little bit older and we start, you're in junior high and high school and whatever, starts, the groups start to form up. And in high school, you, you begin to start saying, well, we're going to go to a, a prom together. And there's a, there's a group of people who say, it'll be us together. And then we'll just make sure we don't invite those people. And maybe you were on the end of that not invited group. Maybe as you get older and a bunch of people in the office are heading for lunch somewhere and it's like, well, let's make sure we include these people but we don't include that person over there. 
Maybe we've been on either side of the fence there. And generally when we're talking about an insider group and an outsider group, we're very careful to make sure that we're at the dead center of the insider group. Such that, no, such that everything that we would do would be very much protected. And we could look way far out there at the way far out there outsiders. And we could vilify them to the degree that we're able to say, we could make them villains. To the degree that we're able to say with a great deal of confidence, no matter what I do, at least I'm not like them way over there. I might not have my act together, but at least I'm not like those people way over there. And we get to envision ourselves as a little bit superior. And Jesus says to us, the party that you ought to be hosting is for those people way over there. This is radical. This is incredibly uncomfortable. The notion of hospitality is about, in some way or another, wrestling with the idea that it is a genuine affection for the outsider. It's not least about sort of including our own people. That's all good. But let's talk really seriously about including those people who are the stranger, the outsider, the marginalized, the disenfranchised. Now, I'm going to take this to the next level here. If it wasn't already crazy enough, we're going to take this to another level. So already you're uncomfortable? That's great, because so am I, okay, just so you know. But now we're going to ratchet it up even again. Because when you look at Jesus and you look at his ministry, there's a whole new level, a whole other level to what we're talking about hospitality that I want you to take a look at. So we're in John chapter 4. This, just If you flip your outline over, I think it's on the back of your outline. Follow along here. It says this. This is, this is a famous story of the Bible, a famous interaction Jesus has. John 4 says this. Now, in verse 4, now he had to go through Samaria. I should say this. Samaria, by the way, is a place that no good Jewish person would ever walk through on purpose. It would be like, uh, because of their history, there's this, there's this very clear sense of this is, a, this is a profane place. So Jews would go around it, and it was incredibly inconvenient. It would be like saying, if you were trying to get from, I live in Irvine right now, if, um, if I was trying to get from here, from Irvine to here in the morning, but I was determined to not drive through Lake Forest. That's the same kind of thing. Like I'd have to go, okay, I guess we're going down to the beach and around and up PCH and then up Grand Valley. But whatever it would be. But it would, it would triple or quadruple the amount of time it would take me to get here. But I would never go through that place. This is what's happening here. Jesus going through Samaria already is a crazy proposition. No Jews would go through there. So here's what's happening. Verse 4 through 6. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot, uh, plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was noon. Now, he's in the middle of this place that no good Jewish man would ever be, for sure. And it's at noon. You have to remember, noon at the well. This is significant because noon at a well in the desert is not like it's 72 degrees with a light offshore breeze happening out there. It's 68 degrees along the coast. Whatever. You don't have that scenario happening here. It's like incredibly blistering hot. Noon in the desert, a hot time. Nobody's expected to go to the well at noon because the only reason you'd go to the well at noon is if you didn't want anybody else to see you there. Verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew. And I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews, this parentheses, for Jews, do not associate with Samaritans. Now, you have to understand a couple of things. Here's a really quick, this is a very rough version of Samaritan history. But 
in 722 BC, the Assyrians rush in and they take over all of where the Jews are living, the Israelites, God's people, the Hebrews. And he takes, they take over these people and they start booting them out and taking over the land. And there's a particular area where the people stay and say, you know, the Assyrians are not that bad. Let's marry them and build our own families and sort of have a family together. We'll just sort of make do with what's happening here. Those people are called the Samaritans. In other words, they formed families with the invading armies and they started to be, so they're this traitorous half-breed of people. The entire race was hated by the Jews because they married the Assyrians who invaded. The Samaritans have their own theology. It's a roughly Jewish theology based only on the first five books of the Bible. They're anticipating a rescuer to come who will look a lot like Moses. And yet they're, and they believe themselves to be the true sort of God-fearing people of the, of the ancient world. And the Jews say about them, they're the most disgusting human beings on the planet. And the Samaritans hate the Jews, and the Jews hate the Samaritans with equal fervor. There is this true disgust for each other. This is, not only is, it, not only is Jesus walking through Samaria, talking with a Samaritan person, he's talking with an unaccompanied Samaritan woman. So you have Jesus, the man, talking with an unaccompanied Samaritan woman at the well who doesn't want to be seen because there's, so, there's some reason when someone shows up at noon in the desert, which is that they don't want to be known by anybody else being there by themselves. They're an ashamed person. Jesus explains, verse 13. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now the woman hears this and she responds, great, give me that water. Because I'm tired, she isn't, this, is, this is what we can infer. Because I'm tired of walking out here in the middle of the day, it's hot and I'm ashamed and I don't want people seeing me. And it's really, I, I just, I want to be able to have water that just keeps on coming for me for my life. I don't want to have to keep coming out here. She doesn't totally get what this is about. Jesus begins to explain a little bit about, her own, about, about himself to her. They have a conversation in which he begins to go, hey, you know, why don't you, why don't you get your husband? She says, I, I'm, I'm not married. He goes, I know. You've had five husbands, and the one you're, one you're living with now isn't your husband. He's acquainted with her shame. So here's this person in the most public, in the, in the mind of the public, the most disgusting, vile people, and the most ashamed person among those people. You could not get a further outside person. Jesus explains about himself. He explains about his own life. Verse 25 says this, The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. I'm the one you've been looking for. This is who you've been waiting for. And they have this conversation. She goes and tells everybody in her neighborhood about Jesus. Now he knows everything about her. Verse 39 says this. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Now, this is the first Bible passage I ever taught. I was like in high school. I was like sophomore in high school. I was at some, like a, a camp. And they were like, you know, it was like they went to the bullpen, you know. Go ahead. We're bringing out McGuire. You know, it was like. Okay, and I walked up there, I was totally terrified to try to teach this whole thing. But in all the times I've taught it since I was, you know, 15 or 16 years old, I've never really caught this one thing that's really critical. And it's in verse 40. Take a look at this. When the Samaritans came to him, they urged him, Jesus, the outsider, this Jewish person in their own land, to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Stop right there. You have to imagine what this means. Jesus is staying with the people 
these disgusting, vile, traitorous people who are the scum of the earth in the mind of Jewish public opinion. And not only is he like walking through, he's staying in someone's house, which means he has to, he has to be a part of their customs. He has to eat their gross and disgusting food. He has to, he has to their, their own profanity gets like attached to him because he would dare stay with these people. And he'd eat dinner with them and he'd have conversations with them and he'd sleep in their beds or wherever else it was. He would be in their neighborhoods for two days. Look what it says in verse 41. And because of his words, many more became believers. Now I have to wonder if his words took on an additional weight because he stayed there for two days. In other words, it's not Jesus just running through Samaria. Hey everybody, I'm the Messiah, follow me. I don't have time to talk to you. You're disgusting people. Woo! He's in their house. Sit with us at our table and dine with us. And then he talks about himself. And I have to believe that because he's in their home, his words take on a new significance and a new weight for those people. Wow. This person from the group that hates us, who believes us to be disgusting, would sit in our own home and be with us. See, the marker of someone who's fully committed to hospitality of welcoming the stranger isn't, that, isn't just that the stranger is in your own home. It's that the stranger welcomes you in their home. So there's a level of danger of having someone come to your own house, whatever that might mean, your own personal space. But there's an incredibly dangerous thing of actually going and being invited to stay because of your own modeling of hospitality, to stay among those people who are the outsiders, the strangers. That is crazy. This is, this is a very crazy idea. I was talking to my wife, Amanda, about this, weekend, this message this weekend. And by the way, I should tell you, you know, I'm, I'm already uncomfortable with this message. Like, I'm totally like, this is really hard. And um, so I'm telling her, and I don't really want to talk about it, so I try to act really scholarly, which she's way too smart for me to do this. You know, so I'm like, well, you know, the Greek word is uh, philoxenia, and it's, uh, the other word is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm making up, I'm trying to, like, have, dodge the conversation. She's like, what does it mean? And I go, well, hospitality really is about loving the stranger, about the outsider. And she goes, oh, man, that's really hard. And I go, I go, what are you talking about? I go, you do this all the time. She goes, I do? I go, yeah, this is how you live. It's dri- it drives me nuts. She goes, I do? I go, yeah, yeah. So we moved to our neighborhood a couple years ago. I live in a neighborhood where it's like, you know, it's an alley. It's everybody just kind of, some of you are familiar with this. But it's, it's old school suburbia. I mean, every house is the same. Uh, it's not quite as pristine as, you know, Ladera, but it's, it's the same idea here. Uh, but every house is the same. And we live on this alley where all of, we open up our garages and the gra- everybody who, when the garage is open, house is open, anybody can go in and out of the garages. That's how we do stuff. Now, but it started this way. We moved there, and it was like, how are we going to live in our neighborhood, Amanda? And I was like, I'm gonna, I really want to pray about what does it look like for me to be in our neighborhood. And so within days, Amanda had met everybody. And she's not an extrovert. Like, it, it makes it sound like she's a person who just is energized by every person meeting her. She just took it on herself, who is an introvert, to meet people and have these conversations with people. So right, our next-door neighbor right, right next to us is... Um, uh, the husband is, is Buddhist. The wife is um, Jewish. They have two kids, two, two daughters. Uh, a little further down from them, there is a family of four from Pakistan. Uh, and I, you know, meeting them. And then there's down from them, there's a biracial couple who has two kids. 
there's a couple, there's a guy who lives by himself on the corner here, and a couple other people, and we're starting to meet all these people, and man is introducing me to all these people. And I'm starting to realize that my own neighborhood is full of the people who are not on the insider of church, you know, sort of homogeneity. They're all a little different. Everybody looks a little bit like they don't all sort of fit together like I thought they would. And I'm getting a little nervous. I'm starting to feel like, how are we going to make, how am I supposed to do this? You know, because now all of a sudden I'm meeting people like the, our friends from Pakistan. I'm not sure at this point. I don't know. Are they, are they Muslim? Are they, do I, do I bow? Do I, what, do I, what am I supposed to do? And Amanda's like, lighten up. This is Ospie. This is Rookie. They're really cool. Meet them. Okay, hi. How's it going? I'm Jeff. And then, you know, these, I'm meeting these other people around here. And it turns out our neighborhood's full of people that have different ethnic backgrounds, that have different religious backgrounds, that, have, that eat different foods, and that even have different sexual orientations, which I was totally uncomfortable with. And so Amanda says, what if we had a party? We just invited everybody to come over. I was like, that is my nightmare. <laughs> She's like, okay, we'll just have it in the alley. We'll tell people to bring out their, you know, bring out their food and their you know, barbecues, and we'll have the kids come over, and we'll hang out, and we'll just, we'll just have everybody out in our alley. It'd be so great. I'm like, okay. So our Pakistani neighbors have introduced me to Pakistani food. It is really good. It is also incredibly spicy. <laughs> Just fair warning. But they've become great friends of ours. Our, our neighborhood's now to the place where we don't, we don't, it's not like we're waiting for a holiday, like, hey, it's a holiday, let's have a party. It's just like Amanda will call people and say, hey, everybody, open up your garage and let's just bring out our leftovers even. We'll just hang out. To, we just want to be together as a community. I've learned, I also, I, by the way, I can be hired for parties for this. I am really good at drawing with chalk the Razor Scooter course that, you know, like a little race course in our alley. I'm awesome at this. I have a special trick. I'll tell you later if you want to know about how to do it so all the turns are smooth because I have a way to do it. Uh, but anyway, so I've, I've got the kids now racing each other in the alley. We have people that would never otherwise hang out together who are totally different being together. And I'm watching my wife create this environment where people get a chance to be together who are hosted who otherwise would have been the outsider who are now saying thank you so much for doing this. And I wonder the whole time as this is happening, I'm like, what is the pastor supposed to do here? I mean, honestly, like, you know, hey, everybody, I'm, I'm the ambassador for Christ here. <laughs> welcome all. I mean, like, yeah, what are we supposed to do? Because I have this level of discomfort, and yet there seems to be something happening here which looks like hospitality. And I'm actually having a really good time. My, my wife, not too long ago, has uh, surgery. She has, she has uh, surgery to repair a hernia. And people were great caring for us. The first people that came over. The first people that dropped off stuff that said, because we have three kids, they're like, How can we, what can we do? How can we help? Would you want us to take your kids? A gay couple brought over a big pot of soup and some cupcakes, which I didn't share with Amanda. Suddenly I realized that the people who were farthest from in my traditional understanding were the people who were actually caring for us. I'm like, what am I supposed to do with this? Amanda is invited to go to their birthday parties and hang out and be with them. Ran into them at the store yesterday, in fact. Give them a big hug. Miss you guys. How have you guys been? Can't wait to get together again. People who would otherwise be the farthest from, 
are inviting my wife to be with, her, to be with them. My wife, my wife embodies, Amanda embodies this notion of a next level kind of hospitality where we don't have all the answers, where the people that we're around, we're probably not going to agree on everything. I mean, they know, this, this couple knows that I'm a pastor. We've talked before about what I do, that I work at a church that holds a pretty orthodox traditional view of marriage. And yet they host my wife and they come around my house and they play with my kids and they love my family. That's hospitality. That's hospitality. The challenge of Jesus' life, the one that he embodies and challenges us to live out, is one in which we go to the outside and live among. Because we're invited, not because we kick open a door and say, I'm here, aren't you glad to have me? But that we so engendered ourselves to other people who are otherwise outside that they say, would you come be around us? No, we don't have all the answers. But we can be a good host and we can be a great guest. And we know what it's like to be outsiders. If you were here last week, we talked about the notion that every single one of us is born a spiritual orphan. That every single one of us is looking to find their way back to their spiritual father, their actual, the, the father God, as it were. And so we would say in so many terms, we are the exenos. We are the outsiders who have been brought near because of Christ. Here's what it says in Ephesians 2. Verse 11, therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised, meaning outsiders really more than anything else, by those who call themselves the circumcision, the insider group of Jews, which is done in the body by human hands. Verse 12, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners, that word foreigners is the same word as strangers or exenos, to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, he is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. I would encourage you to read the rest of Ephesians chapter 2 to understand the kind of unity that Christ brings. That all of us who were once super far away, who are spiritual orphans, have been brought near, not because of our own effort, not because of our righteousness, but because of the blood of Christ. We're brought near. He would come to us and we would host him and he would bring us near. In so many ways, it is God's own hospitality through Jesus which rescues us. And that's what we celebrate. And that's how we're able to, to practice hospitality because we have been the outsider welcomed by Jesus. Would you close your eyes for a moment? Let me just ask you, who is it in your own sphere of influence your own, wherever you might live, whatever that might look like. Who is it in that sphere that is clearly an outsider? It could be someone who lives in your own house. It could be someone that you work with, someone that you go to school with, someone that you knew a long time ago who is, ha, has the experience of being an outsider. Who is that person? What does it look like to have them in your own home? For some of us, we need to move beyond just merely the knowing. Of, maybe we know our neighbors, we know their name because we take out our trash at the same time and we wave to them. What does it look like for you to 
take a next step in terms of including them in your own life. That you would know more about them. Now imagine, too, just someone way out there on the super far extreme. Maybe it's a group of people to whom you go, you know what? In some way or another, they either have the experience of being a way far out there outsider, or I've believed them to be, and so I can't ever imagine myself going and being around them or them being around me. Just pick a group of people in your own head. What's God calling you to do? Because you have been brought near. What's Jesus encouraging, challenging you to do in this? Father, we are people who only because you would choose to bring us near, that we would welcome your hospitality to us, that we have a closeness with you. We have been the outsider. We know the experience of being an outsider. God, because of your great love for us that generously and fearlessly gives to us and hosts us with hospitality, God, would we return that to the world? Would we model that for the world? It is in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Now.